This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Little Gold Men is brought to you by the 21st Annual Critics' Choice Awards. Tune in live January 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific to see who in film and TV takes the top prizes. Only on A&E. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code GOLDMEN, that's G-O-L-D-M-E-N, at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And welcome to Little Gold Men, an award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the Hollywood editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here as always with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. This week, we've got two interviews to share. First, with Drew Goddard and Ridley Scott, the writer and director, respectively, of The Martian, which is one of 2015's biggest hits and still a pretty tough Oscar contender. Uh, It was owning space until Star Wars came along, which we're curious to ask them about how that felt. Uh, And then from there, we'll talk to Sarah Silverman, the star of the indie drama I Smile Back that got, uh, she got a what a lot of us thought was a surprising SAG Award nomination. So you can officially no longer think of her as just a comedian. And uh, we'll talk to her about her experience on the campaign trail. And the reason that we've got all of these people coming in to talk to us this week is because it's a really busy week in New York City. There are a lot of people who are awards hopefuls of all kinds of stripes who are in town for luncheons and interviews, and which makes us lucky enough to get to have FaceTime with them. There's a bunch of events going on. Uh, Richard and I went to the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, which is a you know very fun and large event for a bunch of critics who you never think of leaving the house. Yeah. No, there was, I mean, all kinds of people there in a way that I wasn't expecting. I was really excited to see Liam Neeson, even though he's not yeah. nominated for anything. Yeah, but he, he introduced Saoirse Ronan. Just in case there was a hostage crisis, you knew you were in good hands. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone knows the winners ahead of time. The New York Film Critics Circle announces their prizes in December. So people come, they know they're going to get an award. They give a speech. They're introduced by someone who has some connection to them. It's a really fun event. And uh, Mike, you've been to some of the We've talked about luncheons and dinners that happen during award season, but there's been a bunch of them this week, and you were at a, a good one. Yeah, I went to the Creed dinner last night, and I wasn't able to go to the Fury Road tea yesterday, but this is like the last tea event in the world just because they have to cram so many things. They got to do a lunch, they got to do a tea, they got to do a dinner, and these days, right before the Oscar nominations are solidified and the voting ends. But I was interested that both of those movies were finally, it seemed to me, really kind of going right at the Oscar voters and making their case. And apparently the Fury Road thing went really well, and I'm starting to question my own skepticism about old Oscar voters liking that movie. And the Creed one went really well, and it was a bit of a love fest, and it made me think that this movie really could get a Best Picture nomination. And, you know, I think we all think because of the Golden Globes that Sylvester Stallone is going to get a Best Supporting Actor nomination. But maybe Michael B. Jordan sneaks in there. Ryan Coogler has such a great story. He's 28 years old. I mean, we'll see. Yeah. But uh, it was it was a cool event. It was fun. And uh, after we record this, I'm going to a lunch for the Big Short, which, Mike, you went to another lunch for the Big Short in December, which shows you how busy these people stay on the award circuit. Um, well, those guys came out of nowhere. And well, then yeah. we had Adam on the show talking about why that happened. But now that movie has a lot of buzz. It is really now getting discussed with Spotlight and in an interesting way where The Big Short and Spotlight are kind of two movies about something similar, institutional letdown and disaster and going after it and, and in completely different tones. This, somebody was saying this last night. Uh, Rachel Winter, the producer, was talking about this last night at the Creed dinner. And I hadn't even thought about how they really are sort of companion pieces. And I think they're starting to sort of emerge possibly as the two best picture favorites. Well, I will say I went to a spot light lunch yesterday and the mood was 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 very positive but it was a little staid yes. and there was one kind of kooky guy at my table as there always is and i was sitting next to john slattery 
and the kooky guy was talking to him and essentially in so many words said that he told John Slattery he liked the Big Short better than Spotlight. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know, that might, maybe a tiny anecdote. By the way, these voters there. are so crazy and entitled. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them haven't worked in 30 years. But right. they're there, you know, I've got my vote and I'm sorry to tell you it's going right. to the Big Short. Right. <laughs> right. And then he told him he liked him on, um, on Ad Men. <laughs> so amazing. So yeah. No, I think but if you think about timing, Spotlight's been out for a while and it has a lot of admiration, but I don't know how much kind of passion it right. it inspires in people. And I think the big short has come out of nowhere and really lit it up. People are surprised by how much they like it and it's a more you know, the same, just as Spotlight is so, again, I got to credit Rachel Winter with, with pointing this all out last night, but the way Spotlight is so sort of staid and stately and controlled, the big short's the exact opposite. You know, there's not a single dull moment. Anytime it starts to feel like, oh, we've seen this before, he does a cut, he has a music cue, he like changes tone completely. And I think partly just because of timing, you know, people talk about timing in the Oscar race, like you need to peak at the right time. It's like a political campaign. That thing is looking like it's in good shape. I don't know what's going to happen, but... Yeah, no, I agree. And it was interesting, you know, to see, to get the kind of temperature of these rooms, you know. So it seems like Creed was big. I kind of got a sense that Big Short was maybe a little bit more popular than than Spotlight. And Katie, we noticed that at the New York Film Critics Circle show last night that Michael Keaton was like... I mean, people were applauding politely for everybody, but he was like, yeah, he like uh, the hit of the room. He owned the room for yeah. sure. You can tell that everyone kind of has this affection for him, love over from Birdman. And I think I leaned over and said to you that the problem that it seems with the Spotlight guys is that they keep canceling each other out. Like they didn't, they got a SAG ensemble nod, but no individual nominations. You get the feeling that Mark Ruffalo and Michael Keaton canceled each other out. But if Michael Keaton gets in for the supporting actor nomination, I think he could win the whole thing. Like that could be maybe the power of Spotlight moving forward. And just for the folks at home, I'm sure they all know if they're listening to an Oscar podcast, but. You know, he was the very close yes. second place last year for best actor after Birdman. And that tends to happen, right? I mean, we've seen that happen before where it's like, you didn't get it this year, but we'll get you next time. And for it to be the very next year, I, I think is a big advantage for him. Yeah. So we're in a very crazy week. The uh, Oscar ballots are due on Friday, January 8th, and the Golden Globes are on Sunday. And then uh, next week will be the Oscar nomination. So there's a lot going on at once, which is why they have put all of these poor people back on the campaign trail. But we are lucky enough to get to talk to them. Before we're joined by Ridley Scott and Drew Goddard, a word from our sponsor. The 21st Annual Critics' Choice Awards is on A&E, and it includes the biggest names in television and film from this year. Hosted by comedian T.J. Miller from Silicon Valley and Deadpool, the night is going to be a sophisticated event with T.J. bringing irreverent comedy at its best. Imagine left of center and expect the unexpected. What makes this show stand out is that it's critics who choose the winners. They are the tastemakers. The CCAs are the night to honor the best of the best in TV and film. Mad Max leads all nominations, and Star Wars The Force Awakens is nominated for Best Picture. See which film wins the top prize and which actor walks away with the win. Some nominees include Leonardo DiCaprio for The Revenant and Charlize Theron for Mad Max Fury Road. For TV, Fargo leads all the nominations. Tune in live January 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for the biggest night in Hollywood, the Critics' Choice Awards, hosted by T.J. Miller on A&E. What, what are we going to say? He's 50 million miles away from home. He thinks he's totally alone. He thinks we gave up on him. I mean, what does that do to a man psychologically? What the hell is he thinking right now? I'm definitely going to die up here. If I have to listen to any more god-awful disco music. My God, Commander Lewis, couldn't you have packed anything from this century? And now we'll be joined by Ridley Scott and Drew Goddard, the director and writer, respectively, of The Martian, which is nominated for several Golden Globes this Sunday, including Best Comedy, a designation we'll ask them about, and Best Director for Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott and Drew Goddard of The Martian, thank you guys so much for joining us in our tiny little studio. Pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and uh, this movie has been out for a couple months. You've been talking about it for a long time. But what I feel like we haven't read as much about is talking to you after the movie opened and it became this gigantic hit. And I'm curious for each of you when you realized that you had this huge, uh, you know, big career-defining hit on your hands. I think, um, you know, you've got a pretty good idea. You go into every project assuming that the money's going to be well spent just to be commercial for a second. I've got the greatest respect for the studios and people who give me all this money to go around and dither about and have a jolly good time. And I've always respected that. So therefore, I always go into every project assuming one way or another 
they're going to get their money back and maybe they'll actually make profit. So that's the commercial side of things, but it's in my DNA. But in this instance, the script was so good that the clock for me was already ticking. I thought this is really a very, very strong possibility, providing I don't screw up. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, I, I, every day I'm still surprised at how this film is connected. I don't, I, I think you're right. We were, we tried to be sensible and responsible with with the approach, but I think the the response to the film has been beyond our wildest dreams, and it, it continues to this day. Yeah, Drew, when we talked in the fall, you said the nerdiness of the movie made you even more surprised that people embrace it, that it's about assy tables and you know physics and stuff like that. Is that why it came as such a surprise to you, that uh, people embraced it to the way they did? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm always a little, you know, hesitant to guess at what's going to connect, because I'm, I'm wrong a lot. But I knew I loved it because of that. I knew I loved the, the text because of it, and I loved the movie because of that, and, and hoped that others would find that as well. But then we tested, which you uh, want to do when you're spending this kind of money. You kind of want to know where you are once you've got a solid cut and mix, and it seems to be the one you want to put out. And we tested once and got an unprecedented 98. Now, 98 would be for the highest flying form of comedy, maybe Eddie Murphy at his peak <laughs> in whatever that was, 1987, and Fox couldn't believe it. Yeah, it was the highest testing drama uh, ever. In, in Fox's history. And they yeah. said, "Have you?" He said, "Well, I've never had an 87 even for a com- 97 even for a comedy." Yeah. So they, because they didn't believe it, we had to go back again. <laughs> we then hit a 96, so they're going, "Well, that was that mistake." So we went back again. <laughs> it went, I think, the 95. So. I think we knew at that moment the bell was ringing. Now, do you go and sit on those test screenings? Do you watch how the audience responds? I have to be strapped into a straight jacket. (laughs) (laughs) I have to sit and listen to the questions afterwards. So once you've gotten the kind of third confirmation from these test screenings that this movie is something really special, what changes in terms of the strategy? I mean, we were talking before we started recording about the film uh, screening at the Toronto Film Festival where it got a lot of kind of critical buzz. But does the kind of game plan change once a movie kind of tests that? Through the roof? Uh, yeah, they get very excited. And um, <laughs> then they get even... We tested four times, and each time I said, and finally, in, in irritation, when did Unilas have something in the 90s? And the answer was, never. So I said, what are we doing? So let's get the marketing right. And because I'm out of advertising, I took a very close look, close watch over what was happening with the guys. There. They, they're great, but you've got to... You know, I'm, I've got my opinions about how it can be sold. So I got very much into the trailer advertising, the poster stuff and things like that. You have to. You can't just let it go. Now, it, the last time you were on the kind of award campaign trail this way was for American Gangster. And I'm curious if, if it's changed since then, if, that's like, if it's been a different experience with this film. Did I? Was I doing that? I mean, well, I mean, that was the film had a lot of uh, oh, award season heat, I think. Yeah, this was a different kind of heat. This was even hotter. <laughs> I mean, this was red hot. Basically, American Gangster is a good, very good film. And I think what came out of American Gangster was that it was a surprise that it was a different way of looking at that kind of genre. I think that's what I was most pleased about. And with Denzel and with, you know, uh, and with um, my buddy, my Australian buddy. Actually, he's a Kiwi. He's a New Zealander. Oh. Russell, Russell Crowe. Russell, yeah. yeah. He was playing the bad boy. He yeah. likes playing bad boy. You know, you've you've said that you want to make money back for the studio and that you have a background in advertising, which does make you different from a lot of kind of filmmakers who say, I'm an artiste, I want to deal with all this I'm stuff. Not, uh, and so now I want to ask you, do you think about awards? Did you Were, were no, you thinking no. in, in ever, like, that's part of the strategy to make money on this? Or that's... No, um, clearly what I, I do, there's a lot of artistic choices mm-hmm. in everything, in, not just in... And also, there's, there's an artistic choice in who you cast. Sure. Um, that's, in a sense, an art form as well. You can screw up and you, or you can get it really right. And going, I engage myself in every every visual department, going from wardrobe, hair, makeup, everything. It, it's all, I mean, come from the school of everything. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like to do. But at the same time, it enables me to keep my eye on my budget, mm-hmm. see who's doing what and slap heads occasionally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, this movie, you guys talked about how it's performed well for a drama, but it's also very funny. It's gotten a lot of praise for being funny in your script. Uh, how do you guys feel about it being a comedy at the Golden Globes? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they choose, mm-hmm. which is kind of 
I don't not hope I'm not, I'm not coming across as being disrespectful, but I my reaction was what <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, but I don't know because the categories are crowded on one hand, less crowded on the other, and because we came across surprisingly amusing, we knew it was going to be amusing, pretty funny, but I think it came across funnier than everyone they expected. And it, therefore, they examine the categories because what they want at the end of the day, of course, is an award if they can get it, yeah. which would be very nice. Sure, you agree? Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, if you asked me, my gut reaction is the margin of comedy. I would say no, no. but I also like to work on things that are hard to classify. And and the the question is really, what does the Golden Globes want to you know? classify these things as and this is all new for us so we just sort of go where they tell us <laughs> but you do have to write i mean when you're writing and you, you know you have a moment where matt damon says fuck you mars like you know that that's a comedy beat like you well, know you're writing the structure earlier the it's yeah. earlier the trigger is when he digs that lump of metal out of himself mm-hmm. lies back sighs contemplates dying and says fuck <laughs> and everybody laughs yeah that's then you know you're up and running well, and that's kind of a, it's a relief laugh too. Like that's something you get yes. in horror, you get an alien too, it's, and you just like. Well, it's okay. an understatement of everything that's happened. <laughs> Fuck. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. I think we all know we would probably say the exact same thing, yes. and, yeah. but redefine ourselves in that situation. Yeah. Does your approach change a lot when you're when you're making a sci-fi that has comedy beats versus something like Prometheus or the follow-up that you're working on right now? No, it's different DNA. You 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 move with the flow of the. The or, or, you know, this this script was particularly organic in that sense. It's very good in terms of its Drew's what put what he managed to take and sustain and order or reorder and sometimes reorganize and re-see. Screenwriting off a good book is very very difficult, mm-hmm. and therefore you sometimes got to lose some babies with the bathwater, as, as, yeah. as they say. And I think it's yeah, it's a, it's a tricky. All the time you're making this decision, but when I get something that organically uh, able, I, f- I go with the stream. Yeah. I, f- I figure it's, it's working, it's working, it's working. If it's comedy and drama, that's even more interesting. Well, true, and I want to follow up on that because I've heard that before, that adapting a good book is harder than adapting a bad book. Is that because you actually care about a good book and you don't want to throw everything away uh, yeah, from I th- the start? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that for sure. And you, But you have to trust that if you love it, you'll you'll make the hard decisions. I think the right. trick is to not adapt things you don't love. I try to avoid doing that because I think that's what gets you into trouble because then you really start second-guessing everything and at a certain point you're pulling all the threads out. But with The Martian, I knew I loved Andy's book and I, I trusted that I would, uh, even when I was making the tough decisions, it would all be in service of finding that soul. Now, Matt Damon has obviously been the person, the, the member of the cast everyone talks about because he's in 90% of the movie. But it's such an incredible cast that you guys have put together. I'm curious if you guys have any particular favorite performances in the ensemble that you think we should all be talking about more. Not even for awards, just like, you know, stand back mm. and marvel at how great this person mm. is. Well, I, I think all the children are wonderful. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I don't know who I wouldn't because everyone was taking on a small role because it because it's an ensemble. Uh, in other words, everyone's doing a smaller part, mm-hmm. and yet no one dropped the ball. I couldn't even say. I, right. I was so pleased with everybody. Drew, you've worked with J.J. Abrams and Joss Whedon. These are people who, um, and you, you directed Cabin in the Woods, obviously. These are people who are known for having a sort of repertory company of sort of familiar actors. Is there anyone in The Martian who you would say, I'm, like, that person says my words perfectly? Like, who, who would I, that you'd want to work with again or, well, or everybody? <laughs> one of the reasons I was so excited about Chiwetel is because he did Firefly, he of did course, Serenity, yeah. and I knew yeah. he could do the gear shifts. Because that's right. really the thing that I find hard with, with my work is is switching from hardcore drama to comedy in the same scene and sometimes in the same line. Right. And it takes a real technical precision. And Chiwetel is amazing at that. And so, you know, when 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 you cast him, I was like, okay, we're going to be fine because he can do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it shows. So we're in a year where Star Wars is kind of getting rebooted, Rocky's getting rebooted, and you, and you're working, I know, on an, on another Alien film. You're also involved in a Blade Runner two film. Yeah. Do you think there's something about this moment where people are going back to that time, late seventies, early eighties, and rediscovering these franchises? Or I, I hate to say it, I think I hope we're not running out of stories. 
because yeah. what one is looking for when you make a film or when you write a book or when you write a screenplay, you're continually looking for originality. I can't do it that way. I can't do this. I've done that before. Mm. And I see we see a lot of familiar stuff, which is played again and again and again. But surprisingly, this year, wasn't this the biggest box office ever mm -hmm. this year yeah. in yeah. total? But there was a lot of big failures as well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's what you've got to watch out for. And it's about being original, I think. Whatever you can, you've got to be original. You've got to look at things differently. I mean, some people are saying that the new Star Wars is too derivative. Is that something that, that you worry about when you're coming back to these franchises? And Being too derivative at probably close on $2 billion. I'll take that. <laughs> um, yeah. Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, but, yeah, it was. But, and I still go back because it's hard with J.J., that actually the very first Star Wars was by far, for me, head and shoulders above the best of all those things. To the extent I would call it seminal, yeah. it completely flipped my brain because I was doing Tristan the Soul, for God's sake, and going to go back for more leathering from the the audience and, and pats on the head from the critics because I'd just done the Duelist. Right. And I was taking my producer, David Putnam, then said to me, you want to go and see this thing called Star Wars? It's our first week. We can only get in like the front three or four rows at the Chinese. And I thought I knew George had been doing it while I'd been doing something else. There. We went, and I've never seen felt such a rumble of audience participation. I've never seen that before. Yeah. And I thought, what am I doing? And I put, hadn't gone in too far, so I was able to extract, extricate myself, rightly or wrongly. And weirdly enough, a month later, I got Alien. Wow. As a script. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was the fifth choice. Really? <laughs> Before me was Robert Altman. Really? And, and so did you? What the hell, Robert Altman? Da da da. And I was going, what the hell is Robert? What did you send Robert Altman something like that for? He must have thought, what? Get <laughs> in mind. But because I'm an art director at heart, I stared, and I was reading it. I could see it. I knew exactly what to do. And so I wasn't even shocked by this thing coming out of his chest. I thought, wow, that's interesting, <laughs> as opposed to any normal logical person going, what? That's ridiculous. So you've got to know how to do it. Sure, sure. Yeah. And See, then you worked with Harrison Ford on, on Blade Runner. Yep. Yeah, I was planning Dune, and uh, I'd done it, screenplay with Rudy Wallace, actually. Tulane Blacktop. Really? And um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And he'd written a good screenplay for me with Dino, and then I backed off and said, I've got to go out of here and... Because I saw the road ahead being so long, already I was twitching, saying, Jesus, it's been 18 months since I've sat and set action. Uh, and this script was sitting in Hollywood, which I'd read a year ago when I was mixing Alien. And I went back to them, Michael Dealey, and said, listen, I think you've got a big, great premise there. I think let me get to speaking to the writer. And we sat, ironically, didn't turn over for another nine months. But it spent more time with that writer than any other time in my career. Dune is tough, man. As tough. Many men have died on that hill. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Do you think Dune can be done? Yeah. yeah. I think what happened was there's a lot of familiar ground in Star Wars 1. Mm -hmm. It's in that it's vaguely medieval with technology. And uh, I was going to do Dune way more medieval with mysterious technology that uh, they just worked and made them able to do these things and able to fly, not even question it. Right. So Dune was a more, uh, the Dune that happened was more, in a sense, predictable, I think, in more space science fiction-y uniforms and stuff like that. And I, I wasn't going to do it that way. So do you guys feel a healthy sense of uh, rivalry with the new Star Wars, or is the $2 billion Oh, just no. <laughs> that makes me get even more competitive. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. What? Okay, right. <laughs> you had space all to yourselves this year until uh, yeah. freaking Star Wars. Yeah, we, we did good, though. We were a quarter of the price of Star Wars as well. Yeah, yeah. seriously. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you have, any, uh, no. you have anything to be ashamed of. No. Ridley, you've been down this awards path before, but Drew, this Oscar conversation might be new for you. Is there anything so far that's really surprised you? Or, I mean, what what's the oddest thing that sort of cropped up, you know, now that we're in January? I guess I never really understood what a business it is or what an industry right. award season is. I don't know that I wanted to understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're you're wants seeing to how the sausage that. is made now, yeah. Yeah. But, and so it, that takes a little getting used to. 
But then you realize, oh, it's just an excuse for us to all celebrate movies, yeah. you know, which, uh, which is really fun. And so you sort of get over that first hump of, well, this feels weird being competitive about art. But then you realize, oh, that's not really what it's about. It's about an excuse for all of us to come together here and talk about movies we love, which which is that that part I love. So it's uh, I'm really enjoying it for sure. It's also a blood sport, but yeah, we'll we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll accept that. Yeah, we'll, we'll let other people play yeah. the blood sport. Right. And we just sit here. <laughs> exactly. Is there any of the competition you're particularly fond of? You know, you don't have to go propping up the the other guys, but anything you guys have seen in 2015 that you liked in particular? Loved a film called Youth. Oh yeah, yeah. Jane Fonda, uh, really. She's amazing. Uh, well, yeah, but Michael, Michael Caine mm-hmm. is probably the best thing he's done for me for a, a long time. And Harvey Keitel, and uh, loved the way the director saw the film and loved the visual aspects he brought to bear. There is a real director. Mm. He's a, He knows about everything. And I, I really enjoy that very much. Um, like Joy. Another uh, comedy at the Golden Globes. That's yeah, definitely your competition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, I have to say, I like Revenant. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of if I was going to do a western, that's what I'd go for. Would be the 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 main enemy would be the landscape. Mm-hmm. In that film, the enemy was the landscape. Well, that's what the Martian yeah. is too, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what people don't take into account. Westerns are tricky because I think westerns lost it for me. And I was a big avid lover of westerns as a child, right through. I was 18 or 19. My parents thought I was retarded, actually. Um, but uh, the idea that, you know, in the John Ford, the great westerns, which frequently make no sense whatsoever, like you never see an Indian in that war bonnet in Monument Valley. No mm. way for the searchers. No way. It's historically completely wrong. But I didn't give a shit because it was so spectacular. And the, the, the central character was the landscape. Then there's John Wayne and then there's the story. Drew, how about you? Anything in your yeah. like? Yeah, uh, I love besides he- the Searchers, which everybody. No, in, staying with the westerns, I loved Hateful Eight. I thought it was wonderful. I uh, something that's not getting enough credit. Bone Tomahawk, I thought was wonderful. Yeah, yeah that that's script, an interesting little movie. Yeah, that that's... script is spectacular. Yeah, and and Richard Jenkins gives, for my money, one of my favorite performances of the year. He's so good in that movie. Now it's been fun. I mean, it's been a fun year. Do you do you guys usually get through your stack of screeners by you know some t- by the Oscars or because I know it's kind of a daunting task to get sent all of that? But no, I mean I love yeah. it. I can't. It's like a bedtime story. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get into my what I've been doing. Even it's eleven o'clock at night, I'll slot one and take a look. And it's the great thing about the screeners, you can go now and wrap, <laughs> wrap yeah. it. Oh my god! And, or you're stuck there till two a.m. In which case you go, damn. Okay, and then you can't sleep. But. Um, Damn doesn't happen so often as it should do. We won't ask you about the ones you turned off. (laughs) Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. So before we get to our amazing interviews this week, I want to talk about two categories at the Golden Globes that I find incredibly fascinating. And one of them is Best Actress in a Drama, and the other one is Best Supporting Actress in any kind of movie. In dramas or comedies or anything. Yeah. Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture Drama. Kate Blanchett Carroll, Brie Larson Room, Rooney Mara Carroll, so weird, Saoirse Ronan Brooklyn, Alicia Vikander, The Danish Girl. I feel like this is not as much of a lock as people think for Who Brie do people Larson. think it's... Oh, I think Saoirse Ronan's going to win. I was convinced it was Brie Larson for a long time, but that movie, Room, has just kind of really faded. I think, was it PGA or, or that didn't it didn't get nominated it at? It didn't or? get nominated at the PGA. Yeah, it, it lost some big Guild Award nomination this week. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right, Katie. Saoirse, I mean, and she gave, like you said in, in the, a post on the site, like, she gave such a good speech at film, the New York Film Critics Circle. She's so charming. If she picks up momentum, I mean, it's going to be yeah. like... And I think that Saoirse... Well, first of all, the Globes, I don't know. I'm, this is pretty simplistic, but it's foreigners voting on it, and it's an Irish movie, and it's about coming to America. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's a resonance there. Whereas Room, 
I really loved Room, but no one wants to watch Room. No, no one wants to watch it. Everyone's just afraid to watch it. Every person I knew with screeners um, who, who took them home over the holiday for parents, everyone was like, "We're just going to watch Brooklyn because, like, I feel like that's <laughs> yeah. like grandmothers will like it, kids can watch hey, it." My like, family yeah. loved Brooklyn, and my, yeah. my brother loved. Brooklyn. And that's no knock on the movie; it's not tame yeah. or safe or anything. But it's it's just it's like so meh. I mean, it's well, not tame or safe, but it's definitely it's much palatable. easier to yeah. watch than it goes down much more less easily. harrowing. Yeah. And now this best supporting actress category. I, I totally find this interesting. I don't know who the heck is going to win. Well, because Alicia Vikander and Rooney Mara got bumped up to lead, it makes it really interesting. And we're like, you know, people like Helen Mirren got in that people weren't expecting, and Alicia Vikander for Ex Machina, which is like the real X Factor. Right. So let me let me read it. Jane Fonda from Youth, and she's great. A short but great performance. Jennifer Jason Leigh in The Hateful Eight. Helen Mirren in Trumbo, which the Golden Globe seems to love that movie. Alicia Vikander, not for The Danish Girl because she got bumped up to Best Actress for that, but for Ex Machina, one of my favorite movies of the year. And Kate Winslet for Steve Jobs. So I think that the favorite is Jennifer Jason Lee, but that's a very strange performance. Yeah. And I... And I think that Hateful Eight has as many people who just really didn't like it as really did like it. I think there's just two camps. But I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's kind of make or break for Jennifer Jason Lee's kind of campaign with mm. winning at this. I mean, I think I have this weird intuition that Jane Fonda kind of could sneak in there because Why not? You know, yeah. she's she's kind of people she's popular right now. She's she's been giving great interviews. She's got a Netflix show. You know, there is that kind of Beatrice Strait, Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love factor of like it's kind of fun to give someone an award for one scene or you know however many minutes of screen time, but yeah, but I I think that you're right, Mike that that Jennifer Jason Lee is still sort of the front runner, but like two or three other people I think could sneak in there with Fonda kind of at the front. Kate Winslet could win. I mean, she won Golden Globes the, the many The lone times. Steve Jobs. Yeah. I mean, there was a time in October I would have said, oh, it's Winslet's too. Well, to, that's when we yeah. thought Steve Jobs was going to win I think Joe Reed was in here saying even even just that. So Yeah, I, I mean, I really can't imagine that happening, but maybe it will. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, it does feel very <laughs> wide open. It kind of does feel like you could make a case for any of them, even Alicia Vikander next Machina. Alicia Vikander, like, they love Ingenues at well, the Golden Globes. And I think Ex Machina is the kind of movie that uh, it's a strange thing because with the Oscars, I always think, all right, a small group of people nominated this, and now a large group is going to f- watch the movie and decide. I guess with the the Globes, it's the same people. So the fact that they nominated her means that they were on to Ex Machina. Ex Machina has some interesting momentum right now. And we're getting to the point where enough people have seen enough movies that I I really am starting to feel this heartening sense that the good movies are starting to rise yeah, up. Yeah, I'm worried you're getting too optimistic. I think getting... I am getting too optimistic. So maybe it'll – I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee I think is really good in, in Hateful Eight. I think Jane Fonda would be terrific. I still think maybe Michael Caine will sneak in also with mm-hmm. a with an Oscar nomination yeah. for, for youth. I think people the, – the, the youngish people, bloggers who tend to do lead the predictions online I think may un- sometimes underestimate how some of these older actors will get traction with voters. Oh, sure. You know, I, I, I just anecdotally, we were talking earlier about going to these luncheons and dinners and stuff like that. Every sort of old person uh, we sort of asked, you know, what was said, Michael Caine, youth. I mean, you know, uh, Ridley Scott even said that. Yes. <laughs> fact, yeah. you know? Sure. So I think you're right that that, that you know, that younger voters who, who are sort of into these kind of edgier things might be sort of unfairly discounting stuff that appeals to an older Which is how my audience. hopes for Michael B. Jordan yeah. getting nominated for Creed probably get dashed. Because well, but, but you know, Rocky does have the sentimentality thing to it. I mean, it's a 40-year-old franchise, so, you know, maybe... But I'm still holding out hope there as well. It's yeah. probably it's probably hopeless, but I'm gonna go with my heart on that one. Yeah. I think the, the the one takeaway is that we don't know much of anything, which is exciting. I mean, this time of year usually we at least know the supporting character you know, people categories are, are a lock, you know. And it's that, a crazy year with like with like many, many, many A minus B plus movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and it's really hard to make sense of. It's, but it yeah. is exciting. At least, at least we don't know. And by the time we talk about all this again, the Oscar nominations will be out, which is really crazy. We'll then yeah. know a lot and probably be very surprised. <laughs> I think so. Before we share our interview with Sarah Silverman, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Little Gold Men is sponsored by Squarespace.com. If you wanted to start your own Oscar blog and compete with the likes of Gold Derby and VanityFair.com, you could. With Squarespace, you can make sites that look professionally designed regardless of your skill level with coding. There is no coding required, in fact. It has intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GOLDMEN, G-O-L-D-M-E-N, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Nobody tells you that it's 
terrifying, you know, to love something so much. Well, yeah. Well, you're going to have to find a way to face your terror. And uh, you're going to have to decide what it is you want. Right. What do you want? I I've made really shitty decisions my whole life, and I, I just... I need to remember how to be a good wife and a good mother and a real person. I want to smile like I did the first time I saw Janie walk across a room. I I'd love to, to smile like that again, you know. And now our interview with Sarah Silverman, who plays the drug-addicted, depressed housewife Lainey in the dark indie drama I Smile Back. Uh, she's been nominated for a Best Actress SAG Award for her role. So we talked to her about what that felt like, what it was like to get the nomination, and how she's preparing for award season. We wanted to ha- we wanted to have you on to talk about the movie, but also just to find out what it's like to get that SAG Award nomination, like what that morning felt like, what your reaction was, like who called you first if you had gotten up for it. Like I think a lot of people lie and say that they didn't know it was going to happen, and I'm wondering where you fall on that. Well, now I'm in a very odd position. I did not know it was going to happen. We dare you to lie to us about this. I uh, well, I I think that uh, my various People don't uh, tell me because they don't want me to know. And they, I don't think anyone expected it to happen. In all total honesty, I think that Broad Green, the distributors of the movie who have been so nice and really behind it, were hoping they thought that the, what possibility we might have would be a, a, a independent spirit award because the movie was $400,000 and it, we shot it in 20 days and we weren't. So then they just figured that was it. <laughs> so it was a surprise. <laughs> it was a surprise for everybody. Yeah. And I was, I mean, my manager called me crying. I thought someone had died. <laughs> she was so happy. <laughs> so did you make did you make a big round of phone calls? Did you uh, did you run out into the street? How do you celebrate something like that? I I didn't. I, I screamed. I did scream like a little girl. <laughs> I screamed like a little like a child. <laughs> and I was really really happy. And especially because it's and I know this is what everybody says, but they, everybody says it because it's true. Is it just means so much because it's it's from your peers, it's from actual actors, you know, and uh, it just it makes it extra. It means something, you know. Have you ever gotten to do one of those at the top of the SAG Awards show? They they have the people sitting in their chairs and they tell the story about how they got their SAG oh. card. Have you ever gotten to do that? No, I would love to do that. I love those. All right, well, let's just put that out there to whatever SAG producers are listening. Wait, how how did you get your SAG card? I did a two-part Star Trek Voyager where I played a scientist in a SETI lab who wears a half shirt. Wow. Um, (laughs) Hi, I'm Sarah Silverman, and I'm an actor. (laughs) That's a really good story. You should definitely share that one as much as you can. (laughs) It was, that was my first, I had written for Saturday Night Live, but that was at the time Astra. Mm. So, yeah, Star Trek Voyager was my first acting job, uh, and I got my SAG card, and uh, it was a two-part. It was a two-parter. I got kidnapped by Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> That's um, a big part. Let me think. I remember I went to an acting coach for this, and uh, he, he looked at the script, and he poured over the script, and he finally just looked up and went, look. Sometimes when you're running from lasers, you just have to pretend you're running from lasers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was—I felt so good after that. I was like, right, I can pretend. Like Words it's to real. live by. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've been like a funny staple on sort of the you know the kind of e red carpet pre award show stuff. Um, but you know, going into a season where you're nominated and everything, is is it fun for you? Like, do do you look forward to kind of the, the whole rigmarole of of these award shows, or is it kind of more you're just out there representing the movie? Well, you know, I'm I'm going to the SAG Awards, but the you know, like the Golden Globes, I'm I'm going to be watching from home, and I always have friends over to watch all those you know shows, and we get we print out ballots and we all bet twenty dollars and. Uh, so I love it either way. I it's, um, do you usually? How do you do fun, usually? I, I like that stuff. Are you good at predicting the awards? 
I'm not because, you know, I never know if I should go with my heart or for the money where I think who is, <laughs> who, who do you think is going to win and who do you want to win are so often at odds. And then you go, well, I, I want to win the, you know, $100 at the end of the night or whatever. But the worst is when you go for the money and then the one that you really wanted to win wins. That's when you feel like exactly. you jump. <laughs> I guess I guess the voting is kind of like art in general, where you want to fail doing something you believe in rather than what you think is <laughs> <Right>. going to win. <laughs> so, yeah, just to go back to I Smile Back, which we all watched and think is great. And, you know, uh, this journey for you started at Sunday. Uh, well, I mean, started making the movie, obviously, but sort of uh, at public seeing the movie uh, in Sundance last January. So what has the experience been like as people have watched the film and kind of approached you about it? Because it is, as you've said in a lot of interviews, including with our own Krista Smith, it is something of a departure for you or it's a it's a new new vein we've seen a little bit of you before, but this is a big lead dramatic role. What's the response been as the year has kind of unfolded with I Smile Back? It's been so interesting because, you know, it starts off as this like secret and then, you know, you, sometimes no one ever sees the secret, you know what I mean? Like it, But so slowly people are watching it and seeing it, and it's been so exciting to hear people's reactions. And, and you know, it's like people are always shocked because I'm a comedian, and then it's, like, odd that they're shocked because then they go, well, a lot of comedians can go to drama, and then that's a whole, you know, topic. And also, you know, people are always it's always interesting that in this creative field, it's so rare that people can imagine you doing something they haven't already seen you do before. So it's, you know, people are surprised and, um, but it's nice. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go like, I, you didn't know I could do this. You know, <laughs> I didn't know I could do this. So it's been lovely. It's been really nice. You know, I work hard in therapy to not to try to, have how I feel about myself. My self-esteem come from inside and not from outside forces. That's hard in this business. But for this one, I'd just say, fuck it. I'm going to let myself feel really nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had Adam McKay on the show earlier talking about The Big Short, and he obviously had a comedy background uh, and has really wowed everybody with this. You know, it's still a, a funny movie, but it's obviously very serious as well. And we were talking about what you said, you know, sometimes people from a comedy background are technically arguably more skilled than people who came up doing drama. I mean, do you do you feel that that's true? Do you feel like you have special powers that dramatic actors just don't have and can't compete with? Well, in terms of like Adam, you know, he, what he does is he gets ideas across very well. And that's something that is so helpful in drama or in trying to explain, especially what the top of the topic of his movie is, you know, to have just kind of like interstitials where regular people put it in regular language. And he's good at, at getting ideas across. That's, you know, his gift in comedy besides being hilarious. And it's so conducive. Is that the right? I don't think I've ever said that word before. <laughs> that sounds right. Conducive. Keep going. We'll tell you if it's right. <laughs> uh, um, and, and, and this in what he's doing now, you know, but for me, well, I do think, you know, there's in terms of this part, there's something that I think maybe all comedians have in common, which is, which is that all comedians, I would say, maybe 100% of comedians, became funny as a, a means of surviving their childhood. And that's something that comics, that kind of makes us every man in that everyone has had to figure out some way subconsciously to, to survive their childhood. And in terms of this movie, Lainey, I mean, that's also the case. You know, we there's always a point in our lives when we realize our parents are just people. And then hopefully you also realize, oh, yeah, they're just trying to survive their childhoods as well. And um, so there is kind of this shared wall, I think, with comedy and drama in that way. Going back to Take This Waltz, the Sarah Polly film you did, there are some similarities that you were playing a character who is struggling with alcohol in, in Take This Waltz, and in I Smile Back, uh, your character is struggling mightily with a lot of substances. But there there were two lines, in, one line in each movie. Uh, in, in Take This Waltz, you say, life has a gap, you you don't drive yourself crazy trying to fill it. Well, that's I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, I guess, but... And then yeah. in I Smile Back, Terry Kinney says something to you about, you know, their good moments fading and then bad things happen, but you just kind of have to keep, al- you know, alive to see the next good moment that comes, right? 
could there yeah. be any sense there that like comedy is kind of what fills those gaps in some ways? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You figured it out. No, good. Well, well okay, so that's been <laughs> that's solved. That's a yes or no question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I like that. Was that a parallel? But it is true. I mean, I, I remember my mom saying to me, like, you know, when you're when I'm spiraling down into depression, she she would say, you know, sometimes all you have to do is be brave, you know, in that you just have to exist through these times. You know, if you can just exist through it, it, it passes, you know. But did you have a sense of kind of summoning courage or being brave in playing this role? I mean, I know you said when you you found out it was going to happen, you kind of had a full body panic attack. So what was that <laughs> like when you were on the set? Like, did you feel like there was bravery involved or was it just doing the work? No, not on the set. On the, I mean, once I was there, I just kind of stayed in it. I, you know, I, I, I don't have the experience in dramatic acting, the the, my 10,000 hours of <laughs> dramatic acting in, you know, is where, you know, I can access emotions and then put them away and access them and put them away. My, my emotions are very tightly packed and compartmentalized. So I needed to access them. And then, and, and Lainey feels so much and then she covers it expertly, you know, but it's all out. And in between scenes, I just had it kind of on my lap you know, hmm. figuratively, I guess, because, you know, they like someone like Tom Hanks, who also came from comedy, actually, but he's so experienced and he's so brilliant and he's been doing this for so long. And he's, so, you know, you always hear he's like the life of the party on the set and then they call action and he's Captain Phillips, you know, and I'm in awe of that. I'm not there yet, you know, <laughs> you know, so I, I just kind of was, um, uncomfortable the whole time but it was exhilarating and it, it was worth it but I'm so glad I didn't know ahead of time that it wouldn't be a barrel of laughs because I would have tried to weasel out of it I'm a, <laughs> a, a slut for fun and laughter <laughs> but are, are you gonna continue with this vein are you looking for more projects like this to do in the future I'm never really looking I've never kind of planned out a trajectory but um like some things have come my way, some things that are like an exact replica of this that I just go, well, I just did that. You know, it's funny, yeah. like as soon as they see you can do something, then they just want you to do that again. I don't know who they is, but, <laughs> the industry. but um, you know, just I, just like this, I was just so lucky. It, it crossed my path and it became an opportunity for me. I, you know, I, I had nothing to do with it and I just it was dumb luck. So I kind of count on that. And, you know, I just kind of um, keep doing what I'm doing. Like I always have, I always go back to stand up in between anything. And, and it's a little sisyphysical. Is that a word? That is it a is word. Now. I just made it up. Yeah. Because, you know, it, with stand up, you have to keep doing it and keep doing it. And then if I go and do an acting thing, it's great. But then when I go back to stand up, I'm kind of three steps behind. So. And I can't go on the road and actually, which is how I make money in my life until I have an hour, you know, so it's been, uh, you know, I'm not complaining. I am complaining, but I don't mean to complain (laughs) because it's all wonderful, but they're a little bit at odds. You know, I'm not someone, there are some comics that can shoot all day and then go and do stand up. I can't do that. I, my, my body is, uh, I'm a, I'm a delicate flower. I need at least 13 hours of sleep where I'm not myself. <laughs> did, 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 any the, did any of the experiences here make their way into your stand-up, whether it's making the film or doing the rounds for, you know, awards things? No, not really. And I'm not usually one to be like, you know, I was standing with Kate Blanchett at a, you know what I mean? I, <laughs> I don't, my stand-up doesn't really include, like, life. I mean, I, I talk about life stories, my sister things with this or that, but it, No, nothing really, but it's funny because in talking about this movie and doing press and stuff, I actually, I really love talking about it because I'm interested in it, and it kind of retroactively, there are connections, you know, like in the last special I did, I talked about, you know, people who are self-deprecating and they self-loathing, they mistake that for modesty, and it's not self-obsession, you know, you don't... Mother Teresa doesn't walk around complaining that the tops of her thighs touch. She had stuff to do. <laughs> and that 
you know, even though it's comedy, it really informed Lainey for me because that's who she is. She lives in anxiety. You know, they say if you live in the past, it's depression, and if you live in the future, that's anxiety. And the, so, in a perfect world, you're you know live in the moment. Or, but she lives in anxiety. And that, what if? What if I I ruin my kids? What if I abandon them? What if I you know they get my genes? And there's, it seems like that comes from love, but. And maybe it does, but it really is self-obsession. There's no room for anything else, not even hope, you know. So it has to become a self-fulfilled prophecy in a way, you know. Does working in an industry as uh, self-obsessed as Hollywood make you worry that's all just going to stick with you? Because there's, there's a lot of people who are all focused on themselves around there. There's relief in, in knowing that, you know, like I have friends who will read something mean about them on Twitter or something, and I where they see something's written about them and they're freaking out. And I say, nobody else is Googling you but you. Right. And definitely yeah. nobody is putting it in order of date, you know. Right. <laughs> and to realize that everyone's kind of thinking of themselves. And in a way, that's a relief because, you know, everyone thinks, oh, everyone saw this thing that was written about me, blah, 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 blah. No, no one really did, you know. <laughs> if they did, it will be pushed, you know, like Trump is smart. He... He can say anything, and he he will never apologize because he knows that it will just be pushed out in the news the next news cycle in 24 hours. And when I say he's smart, he's awful. I, was gonna say, <laughs> you know. I think the last thing we expected you to come in here and say is Trump is smart. <laughs> Sarah Silverman. No, that will be a nice headline. Yeah, that's our, that's the quote <laughs> we're going to use for this. Trump is smart, and yeah. then I'll have to let that roll off my back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't Google yourself in the next couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very meta conversation. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned watching uh, the Globes on, on Sunday, and one of your former yeah. flames is actually up for uh, Best Actor in a Comedy, and uh, of course I'm talking about Matt Damon are you going to be are you going to be rooting for him or do you have uh do you do you have anybody that you're rooting for on Sunday night oh I I don't know who he's up against um (laughs) I I don't know I I, I'll probably vote I you know it's I I do I still have that quandary of when we vote of if I go with my heart or if I go with who I think will win because uh I do want the, you know, $20 a person, and there's probably <laughs> 10 people coming. That's $200. I think you can but, vote um, with both if, if you vote for Matt Damon. I think he's, he a, stands a pretty decent he's shot, at least as yeah. likely as anybody else for The Martian. I do. He is one of my all time. He really is one of my favorite actors. He's just, oh, God. Is there, anything, so is there anything that you do at these uh, awards parties at your house, like any tradition, any food you serve? Is there anything like... Oh, <laughs> well, I'm... I'm a terrible host, and all my friends know it, so they all bring food and stuff. I live in a tiny apartment. But there is something that we always do, which is I, um, you know, I'm always just in sweats or whatever. And then at some point I go and I put on uh, this Emmy dress that I wore one year when I was nominated (laughs) that was uh, universally panned by, you know, and also by my friends. Um, It it was royal blue, and it looks like a like a blueberry-themed Ren Faire dress. <laughs> and um, it's right now it's kind of shredded to pieces, but I put it on over my sweat, and then I spend the rest of the night in it. <laughs> so that's what you'll be wearing at the SAGs, is what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> God, I should repurpose it. I still believe in it. <laughs> I, it was, you know, it was a, it was a dress that Badgley Mishka... Yeah, they, I, when I got nominated, they said, "Oh, we want to make you a dress, and it will be collaborative, and blah blah blah." And I was so excited. And then they're in New York, so in LA, they sent like a tailor, and I kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it, it to the point where they they took their name off of it. <laughs> <laughs> now it's now it's your and I creation. remember going saying to the tailor, "That's good because really it was you." And when people say who made the dress, I'll say you. And he was like. <laughs> Looking back, I realized he was like, yay. <laughs> um, Sarah, I think you was in The Hollywood Reporter where you said that you still haven't uh, worked with the nerve to see Still Alice because it uh, just seems too devastating. I'm curious if there's anything else that's either, you know, out there this year or, or recent that you uh, that you haven't worked up the nerve to see yet. And maybe we, we can encourage you. I, and I, I know I'm being hypocritical because my movie is uh, Relentless. 
Yeah. But I'm in it. I don't know if I would see it if I wasn't. I can, my heart can't take stuff. You know, like my, I remember my mom sent me a video that said, elephants reunite after 20 years. And I was like, delete. I just, my heart can't take it, even if it's beautiful. I, so I haven't seen Room yet, but I do really want to see Room. I, I, I know that I will love it. I just have to do it. Yeah. And, it's um, not as harrowing as still Alice. Anything I think. Pixar. I, oh, I haven't seen. Inside Out, which I know will be my favorite movie ever, but I just, my heart, uh, those Pixar movies ripped me to shreds, you know? It's worth it. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. I know I will love it more than anything in the world. I just, uh, you know, I went to see Up, and I, in the first five minutes, I was sobbing so hard. I remember looking at my friend Kulop and being like, why are they doing this to us? <laughs> well, please give us a call back once you've seen Inside Out, and we can talk all about it. Yeah, we can, we'll publish I your will. review on VanityFair.com. Oh, yeah. Sarah, you, <laughs> you've given us a ton of time, and uh, thank you so much for talking to us. And uh, also, please post pictures of you in that dress on Sunday over your sweats, because that's a combo I think that the world needs to see. Oh, I will. Someone always posts it. I'll find something. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I will. We'll look forward to it. Thank you, and congratulations on the nomination. Thank you. No Springsteen on the jukebox? Springsteen fan? Best musician on the planet. Put Jersey on the map. Frank Sinatra would probably argue with that. And Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi? All he ever wanted was to be Bruce. We all want to be something better than we are. And now it's time to go big before we go home and look at one of the more esoteric but I think fascinating categories this year, Best Original Score. And I guess I'll go first because the reason I wanted to talk about it is because of the presence of Ennio Morricone, who did the score for The Hateful Eight, the uh, Quentin Tarantino movie that we may or may not be giant fans of. But uh, Morricone is obviously a legend in terms of composing, and he has never won an Oscar before, which I think makes him a really big contender in this category for that alone. You don't know when he's going to do another score, and The Hateful Eight is big. It's It's been pretty popular. The score, I think, is pretty great. I just can't think of why that narrative wouldn't propel him along in this category. Yeah, he's a nostalgic favorite, certainly. I mean, you know, and also the older wing of the Academy probably, you know, reveres Westerns in a way that maybe younger folks don't, so I think we shouldn't count that that kind of that out, certainly. I should correct myself. He's won an honorary Oscar, but not a competitive Oscar, which, you know. And he won an honorary award at the New York Film Critics Circle dinner he did. Uh, last night. So, I mean, he's got some momentum, certainly. I mean, he's got the momentum of a 70-year career, not, <laughs> not just an award from last night. But, yeah, I think I think that's probably a safe bet. I have kind of an outlier choice. Um, I was re-watching Spotlight the other night um, on just on a screener at home, and I was really taken with Howard Shore's score for that movie. It's not big or sort of, you know, insisting itself into the movie, really, but it really provides this kind of propulsive and sort of vaguely unsettling kind of backdrop to this propulsive and, you know, more than vaguely unsettling movie. And it's a subtle piece of of, of, of music in the same way the movie is, is a sort of subtle piece of writing and acting. And so I think that it, it, it probably won't win an Oscar or even get nominated, but um, that might be a personal favorite of mine this year. So I'm going to root for it, even though it probably doesn't have, you know, much of a chance. That's, but, why, yeah. that's why I go big before you go home. You, just, right. you make your right. choice. I'm going small before I go home, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I rewatched Carol the other night, and that is a gorgeous score. And some people last night at this Creed dinner were talking about the Creed music, which is pretty amazing. And, you know, the fact that they were able to kind of reinvent and also capture the power of that Rocky theme. And, but on the other hand, I don't know if you can bet against John Williams' five-time Oscar winner coming in with uh, another Star Wars score. I mean, he definitely doesn't need any more of these. I don't even know if he has room in his on his mantelpiece for another piece of hardware. But the fact that, you know, that many people, how many, what are they up to, a billion dollars now in, in ticket sales, have gone in, have sat there, been taken back in time with that score. I don't know. I don't think I can bet against that one. I wonder if Creed and Star Wars would have the same problem. The score category is famously finicky about original work, and I don't think either of those scores have been disqualified, but they do really lean heavily on making it you know, a completely original score, and both Creed and Star Wars, to their benefit, I think, use older themes really powerfully. So I wonder if that would disqualify That's them. interesting. If you took out the stuff that quotes the old movie Movies, what's really left? There's like Ray's theme, you know, yeah. which is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've listened to it independently of the movie uh, yeah. many times. No, and I mean, a, a music cue in Creed is one of people's favorite moments. One of my favorite moments of the movie. But yeah, 
Yeah, it's a it's a tricky category, which I think makes it fun. But it's the category that I always feel almost kind of similar to cinematography, where I, it's you know, with score. I'm just kind of happy for pretty much anyone who wins because I think that, you know, movie nerds talk about film scores a lot, but, like, it doesn't really get that much attention maybe beyond. Um, we only have a few celebrity composers, let's say, where I think there are many who, who should join those ranks. So I, I'm, I always get excited talking about it and, and seeing who wins. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find us all writing about award season at VanityFair.com. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and Mike. Uh, Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Tim Einenkel. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Find us along with many more great podcasts at panoply.fm and don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.